I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Without having been there, without having met them, Paul believes he belongs to the church in Colossae and that he is somehow contending with and for them. The idea of the church as a family, with all its problems and brokenness, is lost on many modern Western readers of Colossians, but Paul assumes this is how we follow Jesus, as a family, as a church. To start here is what uh, Alfred Hitchcock says about MacGuffins. (laughs) There are a couple of words that people need to know to understand it all about you uh, and your films, and one of them is, uh, is a MacGuffin. Can you explain what a MacGuffin yes, is? Yes, a, a MacGuffin you see in most films about spies. It is a thing that the spies are after. In the days of Rudyard Kipling, it would be the plans of the fort on the Khyber Pass. Mm-hmm. It would be the plans of an airplane engine and the plans uh, of an atom bomb, anything you like. It's always called the thing that the characters on the screen worry about, but the audience don't care. Mm-hmm. A MacGuffin is an object, if you had trouble tracking with uh, Alfred Hitchcock's funny way of talking there, it's an object or device or event that drives the plot forward. It matters deeply to the characters in the story, but to the audience, it's less important in and of itself. Like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction was one of the classic MacGuffins. Or the Holy Grail in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. One of the more popular recent MacGuffins would be the Infinity Stones of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or the freaking ring in Peter Jackson's beloved sleeping pill, The Lord of the Rings. And oh my God, I am bored just seeing this picture behind me for a second. Ugh. (laughs) We care about the characters, ideally in a story, you care about the characters and you care that they care, but the MacGuffin itself doesn't really keep us up at night. It just moves the story along. Jesus also talked about an item to set a story in motion, which would be precious to the characters in the story, but altogether overlooked by the world around them. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, that's right, people. Chapter 2, two months in, and we have finished the first chapter. But if you're worried, Colossians is only four chapters long, so we're not in Matthew territory yet. You'll be just fine. If you're new, uh, more than four years and 80-plus teachings, that's how long it took us to get through the Gospel of Matthew. And maybe that sounds impressive or daunting to you based on your personality. And you know what? I'll leave you to interpret it how you will. It tells you something about our church one way or the other. So... Let's read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Are you guys all right? Feeling sharp? Great. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the scriptures as we read? Chapter 2, verse 1. 
I want you to know how hard, Paul writes, I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they might be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely the Messiah, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in the Messiah is. Go ahead and take a seat. So it begins like this. Paul tells this young church in Colossae, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for all those who have not met me personally. Now, to contend is to struggle against something or to compete or to fight. Paul is, in the context of this letter, many miles away from this church in Colossae. He's locked up in prison at the time. He's never even been to the church in Colossae. By his own admission, they haven't even met the guy which begs the question, how can he contend for them so far away, having never even met them? So look at it this way. Paul thinks of the Jesus movement, what was then called the way, and what we now often call the church with a capital C, or Christianity. Paul thinks of it as a deeply connected and profoundly familial community, regardless of superficial setbacks like mileage or having never met or, you know, being in jail. And now, Paul is not into the modern myth, I would argue, of a virtual community. He's not saying that you can share authentic relationships online or through social media. He's talking about the broad and unbreakable family of God. And in this sense, Paul is their brother, even though he hasn't met them, even though he's not there, and even though he's locked up in jail. So Paul understands things like the way that he prays or the way that he suffers persecution for the sake of Jesus, the way he bears up under that suffering without compromising his belief or practice, the way he goes to war against evil in living and defending the gospel. Paul understands all of that as something that does not happen in a vacuum. It's not just his personal life, his personal testimony and journey. He is, in all of that, contending for and with other disciples of Jesus, even ones he has never met fighting for and with them by simply practicing the way of Jesus and all that it entails. And I'm stopping here one line in to unpack this whole contending for you thing because I think it's hard for us to get it. Or maybe you're more mature spiritually, more spiritually formed than I am. But given the not-so-great state of American Christianity, many of us do not, by default, think of ourselves as belonging to the greater family of the church. Many of us look on other churches, other denominations and traditions, the greater landscape of the Christian movement in general with suspicion. Think about the way that so many Protestants feel when they hear the word bum 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 Catholic. In fact, many of us look down on our own churches and our own communities with apprehension, assuming the worst. In Christian cynicism, anything churchy is guilty until proven innocent. But if we're not that far gone on the path of cynicism, we might think of our expression of church as the right one. Why else would we have chosen it? But other expressions are decidedly less so. And that's not all wrong. Not everything that claims to belong to Jesus does. Uh, we are supposed to be shrewd and discerning, able to recognize false teaching and bad theology. That's 
where a lot of this letter is headed, actually. But I think we often go too far in that direction. So think of orthodoxy or right thinking, what belongs to the historic Jesus tradition passed on by Jesus, the apostles, the early church. Think of it like a vast countryside. And beyond the countryside is everything that departs from the historic Jesus tradition, what used to be called heresy, I guess still is. It sounds really cool to me, but it makes other people feel weird. Um, Anything that departs from the historic Orthodox Christian tradition, that's beyond the countryside. But within orthodoxy, there's room for the inevitability of disagreement and debate and unique expressions of church. Thus, along the vast countryside are unique camps. And these camps are denominations, traditions, and theological systems. You picked your camp for a reason, but ideally you recognize that everyone who inhabits the countryside that is orthodoxy, regardless of their camp, they belong to the same family and we're grateful for that. When the camps work really well, people have theological homes, they're there for a reason, but they can visit other camps to learn and grow within the greater family of orthodoxy. They do that by listening to different kinds of teachers or reading different kinds of authors, learning from other disciples of Jesus. When the camps don't work so well, they're walled off and aggressive and mean-spirited and terrified of the other camps and the people in them. When the camps work well, we're able to discern that which does not belong to orthodoxy, the things that depart from right teaching and right belief and right practice. We know the difference between true teaching and false teaching while also recognizing that just because people are imperfect and we don't always agree with them, that doesn't mean that we aren't still a family, a really big family. Different Christians believe different things, sure. Every disciple of Jesus is imperfect, yes, but all of us belong to the same great family, the same great story. And sometimes something happens in the world to remind us that we are actually capable of this. Think of the 2015 kidnapping and beheading of 21 Coptic Christians by the Islamic State. Coptic Christianity, if you know anything about it, is wildly different from our expression of church. The theology is really different. The traditions, the outfits are really different. They even have a different calendar. But when 21 Christian construction workers were beheaded for refusing to denounce Jesus as Lord, just about every disciple of Jesus around the world was inspired by their radical faith and recognized them as part of the same family. They were living out the most fundamental creed of Christianity, Jesus is Lord. Afterward, Pope Francis, who's obviously Roman Catholic, not Coptic, very different, he called the Pope of the Coptic Church, yes, they have their own Pope, and he said that he wanted to, and I quote, express his profound participation with the pain of the Coptic Church. In this way, he was contending for them. Now, that's sort of a big picture idea behind the whole contending thing. Participation in the family of God through prayer and faith and action and a recognition of the family. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a little while. For now, why is Paul contending? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So, four things. Encouragement, being united in love, complete understanding, and knowledge of the mystery of God. First, the encouragement. Specifically, Paul wants the church in Colossae encouraged in heart. 
he writes. And this idea can be sort of confusing for English-speaking people. We use the word heart to describe our private emotional world. So, you know, Phil Collins with the whole, you'll be in my heart Tarzan song. You know the song, right? It's a great song. Say, yeah, Dave. It's a great song. Yeah. But in Paul's theology, the heart represents the emotional and intellectual center of a person, our source of feeling and thinking, and not only that, but the source of our will. So we might put it this way. I want to encourage you to fortify your heart and your mind with new strength and resolve that you might follow Jesus well. Heart, mind, and action all together in one word. Throughout the New Testament, Paul writes about the way that the heart, the center of thinking and feeling and the will, can darken over time, that it can become calloused and closed off to God and to people. You disconnect from God and from the community of God's people, and you start to reach for whatever it is that you want to be true until you find it, and the heart goes dark. So Paul wants this young church, as they have begun to face their first glimpses of opposition and pressure from the culture, to remain steadfast in their belief in the love of God and for other people, that they might be united in love. A better translation of the Greek might be knit together in love. When Paul says love, he is not talking about experiencing pleasant, affectionate emotions for one another, the way that we often use the word. In fact, he's not even talking about treating each other lovingly in the broad sense. Scholars argue that knit together, Paul means this to say sharing life in community or put another way, going to church. Simple as it seems, Paul is talking about faithful presence, that the Christians in Colossae will continue to show up, that they won't bail on church and community, that they won't be flaky or undependable, but that they will become knit together in love. Again, I'm not making this up. It seems like I'm talking about this all the time lately, but in his commentary on the passage, Scott McKnight put it this way, Paul is not yearning that these folks will simply have affection for one another, but they, they will commit themselves to one another as they all grow in Christ into unity. To be knit together in love does not mean they will all be committed to becoming loving people so much as committed to one another as a fellowship. Third, Paul is contending for their complete understanding. He's, on about, he's been on about this from the beginning. He wants them continually growing in intellectual maturity to love God with their minds. Now remember in context, the church in Colossae has begun to face cultural pressure to abandon the teachings of Jesus in favor of other spiritualities. So Paul wants them intellectually prepared for philosophical and theological opposition. Scholar Ben Wetherington argues Paul is certainly no anti-intellectual. He believes that knowledge and understanding deepen one's confidence and conviction in faith. Knowledge is not sufficient, but is necessary for a deep faith that has more than effective trust side to it. When head and heart agree, there is profound faith. So the idea is not that we are saved by our IQs. I would be in trouble, a lot of you would be in trouble, but the idea is enriching our mental love of God, pursuing what Paul calls depth of insight. That protects us against false teaching, cultural pressure, and clever-sounding arguments against the gospel of Jesus. Again, McKnight argues, knowledge promotes unity in love just as love promotes unity in knowledge. Thus, Paul is contending for their knowledge of the mystery of God. I love the way that Paul, with such simple phrasing, embraces a tension that has long frustrated so many disciples of Jesus. 
on one end, you have the sort of anti-intellectual, anti-theological folks who use the mystery of God to invalidate the effort to know and understand Him. So they beat up on complicated theological terminology and debates because who are we to try to box God in? Who are we to try to figure God out? I don't think that Paul would buy into that line of thinking at all. All over his letters, he prays and pleads and contends for disciples of Jesus to learn, to grow, to think, to dig, to wrestle with our knowledge of God. This is one way that we fortify ourselves in faith and resolve and against false teaching. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the academic shut-ins who dedicate the bulk of their discipleship to books and scholarship, to cataloging and systematizing their theology in the ongoing but ultimately hopeless effort to sponge away any lingering trace of God's mystery. You meet lots of folks like this You go to grad school. Levi, you were around a lot of them, I'm sure. You meet a lot of, of these types of people. And then sometimes, you, you know, you come close to becoming one yourself. But by the grace of God, I'm sure Levi was fine. Or, do you feel all right? <laughs> I don't think that Paul would be a fan of this either, the whole academic shut-in thing. God is God. He will not be contained entirely by our systems and paradigms. But God is knowable. We can learn about him. We can be with him. We learn about him by being with him in the scriptures, via the Holy Spirit, in community, at church, in our time together. We learn to better understand who God is. And God wants this. He says it all over the scriptures. This is what he is after. God has a name. He is a person, not a human, but a relational being. God is not an amorphous energy for an open-to-translation wavelength in all things. God is personal. He knows you. He wants to be known by you. But He is, at the end of the day, God. So we can know Him, but we cannot, as humans, resolve Him. So we pursue the knowledge of God while embracing the mystery of God. And here's how. Look down at verse 2. For Paul, the mystery of God is in Christ. Keep reading verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't miss this part. That is incredible. For Paul... All the truth of God, all the endless depths of, and wealth of God's mystery is somehow revealed by and contained in one poor peasant rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. N.T. Wright says it this way, Everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered, and this is the force of the verse, with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus the Messiah. That is a bold statement to say the least. This means that for disciples of Jesus, truth is truth. Wherever it comes from, whoever says it, if something's true, it's just true. That's how it works. But truth originates in and is defined by Jesus of Nazareth. So if anything happens to synchronize with the life and teachings of Jesus, be it some tenet of another religion or a Saturday morning cartoon or a commercial for dish detergent, it's true in so much as it agrees with Jesus, but only because it agrees with Jesus. And when it doesn't, it isn't true. For all disciples of Jesus, the only measuring stick by which we evaluate truth against lies is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And watch what Paul says next, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. This is actually a philosophical term. Remember, Paul knew about Greek philosophers and rhetoricians. He traveled in those circles. Verse 5, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I love Paul's choice of words. He delights in the discipline of the Colossian Christians. Notice the way he parallels discipline with firm faith. And Paul talks this way all the time. For him, the journey of discipleship is not a passive belief system, as in you just believe certain things about God, and that's what it means to be a Christian. For Paul, it is a race. Discipleship is an activity. It is a trial, or in many uh, of Paul's analogies, it is a fight. Look at what he writes in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He's talking about discipleship to Jesus here. This is incredible. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it, disciples of Jesus, to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He calls others into the same trial and rigor of discipline, faith, and action. Fight the good fight of the faith, he writes. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And at the end of his own life, Paul said of himself, not, oh man, I made it. I kept believing all the right things until the end. But he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And by this, he means, I have kept the faith. Not faith as an intellectual belief system, but as a fight and a race. Back in uh, 2011, I used to help a friend with this Young Life thing uh, where we would go into Portland high schools with free pizzas and tell teenagers about Jesus. And they called it Jesus Pizza. I didn't name the thing, so take it up with them. And it was the classic bait and switch, classic Christian bait and switch. Uh, come in and get some pe free pizza now while I have your attention. Have you heard tell of this guy called Jesus? Um, it sounds dumb, but believe it or not, a few cool things grew out of that weird premise, and we had presence, a presence in all the public school system, uh, schools throughout Portland. But I personally was bad at it. I had a friend who was like, come on, you'll do some talks with me, and we'll talk about this and that. And he set me up in front of these high schoolers and said, now, you know, do your thing. I just did not have what it takes. And the funny thing is, in those days, um, this was one of the rites of passage, uh, the Jesus pizza thing. But the other, the greater rite of passage was the Portland Rescue Mission. One dude who worked at the mission was involved at our church, and he routinely asked the pastors to come out and share the gospel at the mission while they gave out dinner and during social time. And no one wanted to do it. They all hated the rescue mission gig because your audience, while captive, did not want to hear from some dude who was interrupting the social time or a basketball game or whatever it was. And who can blame them? So they would let you know that they didn't like that. They would jeer at you and yell obscenities and heckle you like two Muppets up in a balcony or something. But I figured, you know, I went and did it and I, I toured in a punk band for 15 years. So I was used to all those things. I didn't mind taking the rescue mission gig. Just felt like every other time I tried to talk about Jesus on a stage. And I would take the angry hecklers at the rescue mission over the angry hecklers at Lincoln High School. 
in Portland. Because I remember one of my very first little spiels at Jesus Pizza. I was just talking about this basic thing in Jesus. We did our best to make it, I don't know, maybe it was still bad, but we did our best to make it, translate it, and make it smart, not condescending, and talk to people like they're actually humans. And a student interrupted me and said, what about crop gods? I'm doing a mean impression of him now. I don't remember what he actually sounded like. Crop gods? And he said, yeah, because he had seen a YouTube video claiming that the death and resurrection of Jesus had been borrowed from popular ancient religious mythologies about crop gods who, like corn or wheat or whatever, would grow up and then die and then come back to life the next season. A few years uh, before that, a hilariously incompetent YouTube movie called Zeitgeist had gone viral in which the (laughs) historically and academically challenged filmmakers, they accused Jesus of being copied from the Egyptian god Horus. It's really funny. The whole premise, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but Cam wanted to hear them. So it was (laughs) something about they thought that like, since Horus was a sun god, which by the way, he's not, um, that that was where they got the idea for Jesus as the son of God, as if a pun in ancient Egyptians translated to a pun in modern English and Ra is the sun god, not Horus. It was a mess. But it, a lot of people were really, they watched that 15-minute thing and said, man, Jesus is fake, man. He came from Horus. So another student raised their hand and brought up Horus. What about Horus? You know, the falcon-headed star of the YouTube Jesus conspiracy video. And I thought, what the heck are we doing? I'm out of here. I'll eat the pizza and then we'll go home. Uh, <laughs> that's where we're at. This last Sunday morning, I was teaching at the church that planted ours. And a friend of mine who leads the youth group there told me that One evening, he was discussing Jesus with some students, and a young lady asked him, was Jesus white? And puzzled, my friend said, no, why do you ask? And the young lady said that she was just making sure because if Jesus was white, she said, the validity of what he had to say, whether or not he was trustworthy, would be called into question. And all that, the crop gods and the falcon-headed YouTube conspiracies and white Jesus suspicion, this is the neurotic gatekeeping being carried out where the gospel dare attempts to enter into our modern world and our culture that has no room, no paradigm for it. Within our respective cultural bubbles, we have been given manuals for right belief, right behavior, right speech even. And the gods of politics and social media segregate their minions. And if you follow the manual within your camp, then you can carve out a nice little niche for yourself. And this is how we evaluate truth based on our manual within our camp according to its standards. This is how we navigate the treacherous waters of sensitive subjects like race or sexuality or social justice or the pandemic politics that have marked the last year and a half. And as the world is made to traipse over eggshells using only the most current PC terms or hating the most current PC terms by default, disciples of Jesus are reminded of an unpredictable and often alienating rubric Only in Jesus can we discover all the knowledge and the truth of God and ourselves and the world around us. We tend to reverse the formula in the modern world. We are worried that the teachings of Jesus have not aged well, so we hold them up to the teachings of the current culture and see if they work. What will it mean for us if we allow Jesus to define truth? Would that mean that we would be canceled or shunned from our camp, or will we lose face with our tribe? In his commentary on Colossians, N.T. Wright says, this is that Jesus is the only truth fighting talk for many people in today's world who regard Jesus as a curiosity of history to be safely left behind by people who want to get on in our brave new culture. 
This was actually a threat in the first century as well. Nothing has changed. This last week, every morning, I was reading Galatians, and I stopped in the first chapter and actually laughed to myself on my couch one morning when Paul said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. (laughs) He said that in the first century, and that's how I feel all the time now. Paul wants the church in Colossae fortified against the inevitable pressure of what he believes is false teaching, and he wants them fortified by reminding them exactly where they go for truth, how they distinguish reality from fiction and truth from lies. And for Paul, this is not a passive intellectual experience. This is actually a race. It's a fight. It's something that you engage. We are going somewhere together in the long journey of discipleship. Again, N.T. Wright argues that being a Christian is like riding a bicycle. Unless you go forward, you fall off. And going forward as a Christian means once more, nothing more and nothing less than going forward in Christ in the King. In Christ, He is the treasure. He is that thing that we discovered that amounts to everything for us, but it makes no sense to a world that is rejecting Him. For us, Jesus is the engine, the the vehicle that propels us in our plans and our hopes and our dreams, the decisions that we make, our vocations, the way we navigate relationships and raise family, how we endure suffering. He is why we're here at all. He matters to us, the players in the story, but he does not matter to the audience rejecting him. Jesus is why we would even bother with learning what it means to be knit together in love. Our church is still learning this. The pandemic did a lot of weird stuff to the world. I don't have to tell you guys. And it it shook most churches, from what I can tell, the way an earthquake that arbitrarily makes one building collapse while another only experiences like a desk that topples over. From church to church, the results have been wildly, drastically varied. And we're not sure what's happened to us yet, quite frankly. I don't know. The state is open again, officially, whatever the heck that means. And if you went want a vaccination, you can get one. There's no more dowel rods in the seats. That's something I I never thought we would have to do. I don't have to teach in a mask that's soaked with my own spit by the time I get done talking. It's most unpleasant. I don't mind. I never mind the mask thing except when teaching. It's really gross by the end. You know because you sang in one. Yeah, super gross, right? (laughs) But in a lot of ways, like I said a little while ago, The whole thing has felt like having to start over. We had to do a lot of things that we'd never even wanted to do and that, frankly, we don't really believe in, like learning how to host an online church. We've had to rebuild and restructure. Cam is still trying to find the shape of our communities and who's there and who's gone. They've been through so much. People have come and gone. We've been starting Vancity Kids all over again from the ground up. New infrastructure, new volunteers, new leaders, And after more than a year of weird gatherings and weird rules, we're only now learning, and slowly at that, the shape of our church as it emerges from the rubble. So we're going to have to learn to contend participation in the family of God through faith, prayer, and action, through being here, knit together in love, faithful presence, actually showing up, to contend means to overcome a trial. To contend is to compete or to fight the kinds of things that Paul relates to following Jesus, and he believes that they are done with other people following Jesus. In Jesus' parable, 
We are a little rabble of people who all found the same treasure at some point, that same precious pearl, and we sold everything to get it. And now all of us have to learn what it means to bring one another back to that treasure again and again as the gravitational pull of life in the world works to draw us away from it. We can only do this when we are knit together in love. It's amazing to me that while Paul is in prison, he writes about being with the Christians in Colossae in spirit, meaning in one of Paul's many, many trials of life, the interruptions of his life, his suffering, Paul's heart, as it were, is in the church, even while he's miles away in a jail cell or on house arrest or suffering, shipwreck, whatever it might be. He thinks of himself as with the family of God. When Paul is going through his worst seasons of suffering, his heart is in and with the church. He wants to be with the family of God, which is amazing. I think that that's something we can learn and relearn. One of the ugly an unfortunate truth brought to light by the season of the virus has been our tendency to pull away from community in our suffering and our rush to not only excuse such a thing, but to validate it as the right thing to do. We found ourselves on a stretch of bad road and we wanted to be alone. And wanting to be alone is not always bad. In fact, it can be healthy and important in the right context. There's a time and a place But all of us confront the inevitability of suffering as well as navigate our own unique stretch of bad road. And while at the same time, culture ratchets up the pressure pressure to dispense with the old, antiquated, unhip teachings of Jesus. And in all of that, the bad road, the pressure, we need each other. And I don't mean to undermine anyone's pain or to critique the often admittedly unthinking things that we do when we're hurting. But I've listened over the last year and have heard time and time again a surprising refrain, which was something to the tune of, I'm in pain, I'm not ready to be at church. If you are going to survive your pain without the truth coming apart in your shaking hands, You need the family of God to come around you and hold on to you for dear life. Yeah, but I've got serious pain. Well, then let's carry it together. Let's do something about it. Let's talk and pray and process and heal. Let's get into therapy. Let's get support. Well, yeah, but someone hurt me. Well, someone hurt all of us. All of us hurt someone else. But we're what we've got And we are what we need. And no, we won't be perfect. No, we won't always get it right. But what other options have we got? Everywhere you look, there's people. Wherever you go, they are going to disappoint you. And we come through these doors week after week and into our communities and homes week after week, knowing that we've hurt other people and we've been hurt by other people. But that this broken family still somehow has the truth, the precious treasure, and we can't keep it together all on our own. We need this. We need this sacred space of prayer and worship. We need the sacrament of communion and being together every week, again and again, in a sanctuary and around a dinner table, opening our lives to one another so that we can contend for one another. As we continue to steady ourselves on shaking legs, may we hobble deeper still into the imperfect beauty of the church, being knit together in love and contend 
for one another, fighting the good fight of faith. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do this well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.